The reading is taken from John chapter 17, verses 6 to 19. Jesus prays for his disciples. I have revealed you to those whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours. You gave them to me, and they have obeyed your word. Now they know that everything you have given me comes from you. For I gave them the words you gave me, and they accepted them. They knew with certainty that I came from you, and they believed that you sent me. I pray for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those you have given me, for they are yours. All I have is yours, and all you have is mine, and glory has come to me through them. I will remain in the world no longer, but they are still in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me, so that they may be one as we are one. While I was with them, I protected them and kept them safe by the name you gave me. None has been lost except the one doomed to destruction so that scripture would be fulfilled. I'm coming to you now, but as I say these things while I'm still in the world, so that they may have the full measure of my joy within them. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them. For they're not of the world anymore. They're not of the world anymore than I am of the world. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. For them I sanctify myself, that they too may be truly sanctified. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Colin. Good morning, friends. It's great to be back with you. As Dad said, my name's Tom. Uh, I grew up here at St. Paul's. And um, now as we prepare to move to Emmanuel Church in Guildford, where I'll be the vicar from the summer, those of you who put up with me in the children's and the youth groups, I think we'll have a particular anointing to pray for God's mercy on the people of Guildford and of that church in particular. But let's pray as we start, shall we, as we look at this passage. Father, we thank you uh, for your word to us. We thank you that you have called us out of the world. And we pray now that as we open the scriptures together, you might open our eyes that we might see Jesus and fill our hearts afresh with your Holy Spirit. 
In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So the third in our three-part series on the three great enemies that we face in the Christian life, the world, the flesh, and the devil. And we've seen how John Mark Homer articulates them for our context, the deceitful ideas of the enemy that play to the disordered desires of our flesh that are then normalized in the sinful society of the world. And it's the third of those that we're looking at today, what Jesus is talking about in John chapter 17, as he prepares to leave his disciples, how we, as the people of God, relate to the world. And I don't know about you, my favorite bit of any story, I'm a great reader, love films, love stories, my favorite bit of every story always comes right at the end. And when it's when the main character returns to their situation that we pick them up at on page one, returns to the old challenges, the old enemies, the situation that we met them in at the beginning. And we see how the things that had overwhelmed them at the start, they've now grown through. They return, but they're different. Uh, one of my favorites is in one of the Chronicles of Narnia, The Silver Chair. And in C.S. Lewis's book, we meet the main character, Jill, at the start of the story. And she's crying and hiding at school from this gang of bullies who are making her life hell. Uh, and that's how we find her. And then Jill gets taken into Narnia, and she meets Aslan, and she goes and rescues the prince. And they have this whole adventure. And right at the end of The Silver Chair, Jill returns to the school. And the gang of bullies who'd been ruining her life come running up. But now she's a warrior of Narnia and she sees them off and they run away sobbing. Um, and the whole school is changed because she's faced down these bullies. She's returned to the old challenges. But the old challenges no longer have power because of how she has been changed. And we face a real challenge as Christians living in the world. The torrent of the dominant culture is forceful. And if we're not alert, it will sweep us before it. It's like the old story of the frog boiling in the pot of water. If you put a frog in a pot of boiling water, it'll jump out. But if you put it in a pot of cold water and it slowly heats up and heats up and heats up, it will end up boiled without even realizing it. And if we aren't alert to what is happening in our world, then the sinful society that we live in will seep into us until we don't see things any other way. It'll slowly turn us away from Jesus until we pay lip service to him, probably still call ourselves Christians, but we live in practice far from him because we let the world set our values and our trajectory and define what we think is normal. And by ourselves, it would be far too powerful to resist. But that's where Jesus' prayer here in John 17 is so encouraging. Jesus, who is the risen one, the king of kings, the Lord of all, has called us, you and I, out of the world. And he's praying for us, even now. And he wants to send us back into the world, not as unwitting victims, but as transformative agents, as salt in the meat and light in the darkness, as love and compassion amid intolerance, as justice amid greed, as hope for the hopeless, as grace for the shamed, as Jesus' life-giving presence, filled with his spirit, transformed and transforming the culture we find ourselves in, in his name. And so from this passage, I think we learn two things. First, the nature of the world, and then second, the nature of our relationship with the world, that we've been called out in order to be sent back in, transformed. So what do we see about the nature of the world? Well, John chapter 17 and verse 14, Jesus says, The world has hated them, for they aren't of the world 
any more than I am of the world. There's three possible ways that that we can translate world, three ways we can understand it. And it's the third that's in mind here. It's exactly the same in English. Uh, The Greek word is cosmos. We translate it with um, the English word world or cosmos. And the first meaning is the cosmos, stuff, the universe, the sun, the moon, the planets, all the things that exist, the world. The second possible meaning is all the people. Uh, The world is in humanity, everybody who exists. But it's neither that first meaning, all the stuff, nor that second meaning, all the people that's in mind here. It's all the structures. It's the system. It's the setup. It's the culture. The world here is the system of practices and standards associated with secular society. And we read in John chapter 14 that that system, that structure, is not of God. Abraham Heschel, the great Jewish rabbi, says, The world is the place where man reigns supreme, with the forces of nature as his only possible adversaries. Man is alone, free, and growing stronger. God is either non-existent or unconcerned. It's human initiative that makes history, and it is primarily by force that constellations change. Man can attain his own salvation. So the world is the system in which we live, which is not of God. It's not thinking about God. It's not concerned about God. God is largely absent. But it goes further. The second thing we learn about the world in this verse is that the world hates the things of God. In John chapter 17 and verse 14, it is anti-God. And that's not a surprise because in John chapter 12, Jesus has described the devil as the prince of this world. The world is the place where the devil is in control, where our cultural and social practices are under the control of the enemy and so opposed to God. The world is Satan's domain where his values and his authority reigns. Although The fact that he's the father of lies and of deception means that's often quite hard to realize. He tries to hoodwink us to the reality. If you're of the world, everything that's happening seems right. Uh, I spend a lot of time meeting with students, and often when I'm meeting, um, there was one I was meeting a few weeks ago, a 21-year-old guy who's living primarily for pleasure, for parties, for sex, for drugs, for clubbing on a Friday night. He thinks he's having a great time, but knows that he's empty inside. But he said to me the other day, The thing is, Tom, all of this stuff, it just seems good to me. And the stuff that God is telling me to do, it just seems bad. That's what it is like when we're of the world. What is bad seems good. And God's ways which are good seem bad. Because the world is opposed to God. And the third thing that we see in John chapter 17 is that the world is corrosive. Let me read from verse 15. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world but that you protect them from the evil one. They're not of the world, even as I am not of it. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. Jesus prays that we might be protected from the evil one and made holy because we're not of the world. And the danger is the opposite, that the deceitful ideas of the enemy that play to the disordered desires of our flesh, they become normalized in the sinful society that we live in that we think they're normal, and so we're not holy, we're not distinct, and we start to believe that the values of the world are right. Uh, It's herd mentality. We often say, don't we, that uh, bad company corrupts good character, and we know that good or bad traits can spread through relationships like a virus. It can happen with good things, so perhaps health and fitness and running. If you've had a friendship group or a family that was quite unhealthy, and then one person says, I'm going to lose some weight, I'm going to go on a diet, I'm going to do a couch to 5K, I'm going to run a 10K, they'll probably pull someone else along with them. And you can see how health and fitness can spread the whole way through um, a social group. And it can happen just the same with bad stuff. 
we get um, our vision of what is normal gets changed and defined by the people around us. Perhaps the most awful example in our history is um, that of human slavery and the transatlantic slave trade, that a society which claimed to be Christian and went to church every Sunday and read its Bible could embark in the transatlantic slave trade, which was so clearly opposed to everything that Jesus said. How? Because everybody was doing it. Because it was normal. And so they got blinded to the values of God. It became normalized until it took great effort for the abolitionists to wake people up to how evil slavery was. And we live now in a world that has redefined good as evil and evil as good, where lust has been redefined as love, where marriage has been redefined not as a covenant of lifelong faithfulness, but a contract for personal fulfillment, where the objectification of women through pornography has been called female empowerment, where greed and injustice has been called capitalism and responsibility to shareholders, even up to the redefinition of abortion. Perhaps the greatest infanticide in human history under the label of reproductive justice. There's something awful about the dehumanization of millions of children under the name of justice. No longer a baby, just a fetus. And I think the majority of people are blind to the logic here, but Peter Singer, the professor of bioethics at Princeton, has been arguing for years for what he would call afterbirth abortion, what the Bible would call murder of children the thing in the Old Testament that God most hates because he loves and protects and is for the weak and the marginalized and those who can't stand up for themselves. Now hear me clearly. People are not the enemy. The church's role here is not to judge human beings who believe or do different things. Our call is to love and show grace and compassion to every person made in the image of God. The enemy here is the system that calls these things good. It's the structures of our world that lead people astray and lead them down a dark alley that does not deliver what it promises. Ephesians tells us that our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against the spiritual forces of this dark world. And our call as the church is to respond to people with love and compassion, and at the same time, not to be blind to the corrosive forces of the world. Um, Because often, for many of us, it might not be the... um, headline examples that we've already touched on that are the greatest danger, but the, the more subtle corrosion of the world. Um, it's radical individualism that says that every person is an island, that it's all about me and that it's more about my rights than my responsibilities to other people. We're so individualistic in the church. The consumerism that says that I should receive and take and get rather than be part of a network where I give the prioritization of my pleasure and my comfort. These are the values of the world and they seep into me and us in the church. The world is the system of practices and standards of a world without God. Not just is God absent, but God is opposed. Good is redefined as evil, and evil redefined as good. And it's corrosive. It permeates our hearts, and it forms us in its image and deforms us from the image of God. I think that's probably enough of the bad news, isn't it? Uh, So that's the, the heavy bit done. Where's the hope? What's the good news in this situation? Where's the gospel in this great challenge that we face? Well, the good news of the gospel 
is that Jesus came to save us from the world. To save the world in the sense of saving all the people in the world from the dominion of darkness and these structures and forces that enslave us. To rescue us, every person who believes in his name from the dominion of darkness and bring us into the kingdom of the saints in light. Titus chapter 2 says, He gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. That's what we've been brought into in the church. And in John chapter 17, Jesus makes clear that he has called us out from the world, that we might be separate, that we might be distinct. And he prays and he asks God in verses 16 and 17 to sanctify us, which means to make us holy, to make us like him. Uh, In verse 6 and verse 14 and 17, three times, he explains how. He keeps saying it's by the gift of God's word. It's God's truth. John chapter 14, verse 17, sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. And it's by the power of God's word that he changes us to make us more like him. We become prepared to be the countercultural people of God, transformed into Jesus' likeness, so that we can be sent back into the world and into our situations as salt and as light, to take a stand against what's wrong, to make a difference where we are to lay down our lives if necessary out of love for those around us as he first did. Because for you and for I, Jesus died that he might purify a people for himself. He died for our holiness. That's what verse 19 says, John 17 verse 19. For them I sanctify myself that they too might be sanctified. He's speaking on the night before the cross. He devotes himself to God and dies in our place. Jesus lives the only perfectly holy life, the only life that hasn't been corrupted by the forces of our world. And then he offers himself as a sacrifice for us on the cross, a pure and pleasing and holy offering to God, the only one without sin. And he gives up his sinless life in exchange for mine and yours, our broken and sinful lives. And just as he takes our sin, he gives us his risen life and his holiness. And to accomplish that, to form us in his image, to grow in us the holiness that he died that we might receive, he has to call us out from the world. People aren't the enemy. We're called to love people. The system, the structure is our enemy. We don't talk about the fact that the system of the world is our enemy because we've been neutralized. We've come to think that it's normal. Our values indistinguishable from the people next door. Um, C.S. Lewis wrote in the Screwtape Letters in 1942. I I was amazed how these words are 80 years old. Um, And you'll know the setup of the Screwtape Letters. It's a parody where a senior devil is writing to his nephew, the devil in devil school, learning how to be a better demon. And so this senior devil, Screwtape, writes to his nephew, Fortunately, the church have said very little about the temptations of the world for the last few decades. That was written in 1942. How much more is that the case today? John Mark Homer says it this way. He says, every follower of Jesus in every culture has to constantly ask the question, in what ways have I been assimilated into the host culture? I think that's the question for us this morning. In what ways have I come to see as normal what the world says is normal, that is opposed to the values of the kingdom of light? might be that radical individualism, might be that consumerism, might be the secular sex ethic, whatever it is. Jesus has called 
and died that we might be holy. His desire is your holiness. His prayer in John 17 is for our holiness. His death was for our holiness. His risen life now enables our holiness. And his accomplishment, his death on the cross, his atoning death in our place, enables our holiness. That's his desire. And he calls us out from the world. But he calls us out, not just so that it could end there in a little box enclosed away from everyone else. He calls us out from the world to transform us so that he can send us back in as he was. That's verse 18. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. For them I sanctify myself that they too may be truly sanctified. His prayer isn't that we cut ourselves off from the people around us, but that God protects us and changes us and transforms us so we can be sent back in with Jesus' love for the people that we see every day. The church is meant to be a counterculture. It's meant to be a place where holiness and love fight back against the toxicity of the world. The very word in Greek, ecclesia, means the called out. We are the ones who've been called out to be different. And we've seen that the deceptive lies of the enemy are powerful because they play to our disordered desires in our flesh in the echo chamber where they're normalized in a sinful society. We're called as the church to build that community which does not normalize the evil that the world does, but normalizes the love and the sacrifice and the justice and the truth and the beauty that we find in Jesus. And so we fight back by the spiritual discipline that is the church, a society of the redeemed that resists the twisted values of the world and shines with grace and truth, a community of deep relational commitment in a culture of individualism and isolation, a community of holiness in a culture of hedonism, a community of grace in a culture that is day by day more intolerant. And that's why Sunday worship is so important. That's why being part of a small group is so important. Uh, church is our identity, but church is also a spiritual discipline, the discipline of coming together to be formed by each other. Uh, it's one of the reasons COVID was so damaging. It broke the habit for many of us of gathering together as the people of God because we got used to spending our days in our houses and we need each other if we're going to do this. It's the place where we come and we sit together under the authority of the scriptures so that the word of God might purify us and change us. We come to church not because it's fun, not, not even necessarily because we want to. We come because it is a discipline that forms us in Jesus' likeness, where we come together as the community of those who've been washed by his blood. The world is corrosive, but the good news of the gospel is that the Lord Jesus Christ has saved for himself a remnant chosen by grace. He's called us out from the world, paid for by his blood. And the message today is not that we should try harder. We don't fight this by ourselves. We don't resist it in our own strength. We'd be doomed if we tried. It's not a message, another burden of something we've got to do. Today we rejoice of what Je in what Jesus has already done for us and the prayer that he is praying the Lord might continue to do in our midst, that he meets us by his Holy Spirit and changes us, bears in us the fruit of his Spirit, is at work among us to make us holy as we gather together and as we read the scriptures together so that we might be sent back as light in the darkness, so that we might hold out hope to a world that is more hopeless than ever,
Uh, and the good new, great news of Jesus, love, is that there is always hope. Nothing is impossible with God. It may be that as we talked about some of the ways in which we have become um, infected by the world, that some of you felt guilt or shame or conviction. And the, the good news is that it's not, there's no judgment from the Lord because we receive his grace in Jesus. The judgment was taken by Jesus on the tree. Whatever it is that we see in ourselves and we say, I wish I wasn't like that. I wish I hadn't been led astray. I wish I hadn't made that mistake. The Lord washes us clean, embraces us as his prodigal children, fills us with his love and changes us. There is always hope in Jesus' name. So we have to go out into our world and hold out hope to a world that has no other hope. Because the secular experiment that our culture has been embarking on for the last 50 years is not working. We see the cracks everywhere. We're more politically polarized than ever. We're more digitally enslaved than ever. We're more personally anxious than ever. The experiment of a world without, without God is leading to family breakup and awful mental health and challenges left, right, and center because our only hope is in Jesus. And we are to go, to go out as the church to hold out that hope to a world in need and tell every person of Jesus' love for them and what he's done that they might be holy. John Mark Homer writes in the book, he says, I have more hope now than I have had in years. The post-Christian West is failing. It's not delivering on its promise of the kingdom without the king. But in a culture that is increasingly unable to live up to its own standards where cracks are everywhere, Jesus is the hope of the world. His love never fails, and he holds out his arms to every person that they might find hope forever in him. The Lord is calling this morning for his church to rise up again and to be the church that the world needs, to put its roots down deep into God's word, to seek the move of the Spirit in prayer, to commit to each other, to living out together the values of the kingdom of heaven and a world that has forgotten what they are. The world is not God, more than that, it's anti-God, more than that, it's corrosive. But we have been called out of the world, washed by the precious blood of Jesus to live as a counter-culture and to be sent back into society to point to the only one who can save and the only one who can heal, Jesus, the Savior of the world. Would you stand with me and shall we pray? And if the band would come back. And we pray the oldest prayer of the church. We pray, come Holy Spirit. Come Spirit of the living God, for we need you so much. Come Holy Spirit and meet with your people, we pray. Come Spirit of truth and sanctify us. Come Spirit of the living God and fall on each one of us as we wait on you. As we wait, the Lord is present to refill us with his spirit, the spirit of holiness. Um, you may find it helpful to hold out your hands as if you're receiving a gift, just as a symbol of that openness to the Lord refilling you, re-sanctifying you, re-washing you, renewing you. Come, Holy Spirit, and fill us afresh, we pray. How we need you.
in the kingdom of God, there is grace for the guilty. And I think there are one or two today who are just feeling the burden of shame, um, who haven't yet heard and felt the good news of the gospel. And whatever it is that you're feeling guilt or shame for, just name it to the Lord and receive his grace, his compassion. He doesn't stand and point the finger. He wraps you up in his embrace. He's paid for it all on the cross. Don't let anything that you've done be a barrier to God. He doesn't want it to be. Just name it and receive the promise, the assurance of his forgiveness. His grace is here to meet with each one of us. Just alongside that, <clears throat> that forgiveness and washing clean for what's been wrong, there's also a real sense of newness. Uh, Tom was preaching being called back into the world differently. Uh, I've been thinking about this a lot this week, just seeing all the spring coming and the ground that's looked dead suddenly bursting into life with all the new flowers and shrubs. Uh, and as the prayer ministry team were praying in the week, there were some pictures of newness. Um, <coughs> I read this, a sense the Lord wants to awaken things in people that have been put down over the last couple of difficult years, or maybe not realized that God had for them or wanted to do in them and through them. He wants to waken us up to see him more clearly, uh, to invite him into our lives, to bring healing, and then to use us for new things. And there was also a picture of someone feeling called to play a song, but they couldn't read the music, and the Lord needs to teach us how to do that. And just alongside that, as we prayed before the service, one of the children who was praying with us had a picture of, they were watching lambing yesterday and saw one lamb born fine and the other one struggling. Then a real sense that God helped that other one to get going as well. So Lord, we pray, not only would you pour your spirit on us to cleanse us from guilt and shame, but you would fill us afresh with your spirit and energize us to go back into the world with hope and with Jesus, mm. and with generosity and service. Mm. There'll be a chance to pray with the prayer ministry team after.